I think all of y'all are familiar with Thich Nhat Hanh, Vietnamese Buddhist monk. Um, just remarkable, remarkable teacher on mindfulness. Uh, and one time when my girls were young, I, I, he came to the States when he was younger. He's now up in his 90s and in fragile health. So obviously he's not been here in a while. Um, when he was younger, he would come every other year to the States and his retreats were the one place that I could take my whole family. You know, I could take my girls no matter how young they were. Um, and they had like this wondrous um, kid program and I could meditate. Um, and it was really, really lovely. And they would have like literally a thousand people at these retreats. Um, so they were very, very large and somehow just deeply intimate and personal in a remarkable way. And um, Thich Nhat Hanh, when you're with him, everyone calls him Thai, which is teacher. Um, um, when Thai would teach, you know, he'd have a thousand people in the room. And there was a way that he could do it that it felt like he was speaking directly to you. That it was, there was this just powerful felt presence of compassion and love and care. And there's one teaching that he gave one time that I'll never forget. It was um, drawing from a teaching of the Buddha. Um, and what he did was he held up a flower um, in front of a thousand people. We could all see, you know, this one single flower that we, he was holding up. And he talked about looking deeply into the nature, the true nature of the flower and seeing the clouds and the rain and the sunshine and the earth and knowing that when we see this thing we call flower, that what we're really seeing is, is woven creation of the universe right here and all of it being held in this flower. There was a way he was able to share that that moved beyond intellectual fact. I mean, if you look at the intellectual science of what he was saying, it's true. It's absolutely true. There's, there's, no, there's no real question about it. But most of us carry that at a factual level that we very little integrate into our lives. And there was something about the way he shared it that allowed this shift from intellectual fact to embodied knowing oh yeah not just the flower but me too and everyone around me and everything around me we all too are connected in this way very powerful teaching i come back to that because i realized i skipped over it in our um, journey on the eightfold path um, for those of you who haven't been here for a while, uh, we have been exploring um, the Buddhist psychology teaching of um, the Four Noble Truths, which are what causes suffering, what re um, that there is suffering in life, what the cause of that suffering is, there's a way out, and here is the way out. And the Eightfold Path is the path out. And this um, quality factor of Attuned mindfulness is one of those. 
what we learn with mindfulness is it's not just about, you know, watching the breath move in and out. Uh, it's about the wisdom that we gain from this practice, from this watching, um, and the integration of that wisdom into our life in a way that begins to affect all of our relations internally and externally. So um, one of the wisdoms that comes up naturally with deep awareness of this moment now are what are called the three marks of existence, um, uh, dukkha, anicca, and anatta, which are, <clears throat> there is this, this kind of suffering um, that is inherent in life as long as we relate with clinging. There is the fact of impermanence, and we've talked about those two. And then the third one, anatta, the one that I skipped over, uh, is a teaching on, sometimes translated as no self, which is not a great translation, probably better is not self. Um, I'm seeing more and more teachers um, um, move to that translation, not self. So that was basically the teaching that, that um, Thich Nhat Hanh offered that morning with the flower. I put it in the context first of his teaching because it's so easy to misunderstand this wisdom of not self, um, um, to like totally miss the boat on it and the Buddhist psychology term of emptiness in a way that instead of helping us untangle for suffering, actually gets us more tangled up. Uh, and this misunderstanding of it is really not new at all. I loved a quote I found from the third century Indian um, Buddhist teacher, um, Nagarjana, I don't know how you pronounce his name. Uh, what he said was emptiness, meaning this, this very similar to not self. Um, wrongly grasped, if we misunderstand it and we grasp at it at the wrong way, it's like picking up a poisonous snake by the wrong end. You know, that's, that's pretty direct of if you take this in the wrong way, it's not going to help your life. The wrong way that is commonly misunderstood is hearing not self or emptiness, but we're going to focus on the not self as nihilistic void, as there is nothing there. That's never, ever, ever what is pointed to or meant by this by these teachings. Rather, what we are seeing into is the fact of interrelatedness of all things, of all beings, of all processes. Uh, and when we experience the truth of being part of this interrelated whole, then compassion is a natural, natural opening and awakening to it. So not self or nata, what it's really referring to it's not that we don't have, I mean, everyone, all of us have in us inside our heads, 
um, some sort of voice that's kind of going on. And, and Westerners, it tends to be a voice in our head that we associate as me, as kind of like being a defining part of who I am. What this teaching is pointing to is not that that voice doesn't exist and not even that there aren't places that that voice can be really helpful and useful. It's just pointing to that there actually is in fact no separate existence of any part of us or anything from anything else. And this is not just uh, a Buddhist realization by any means. Um, indigenous spirituality, deeply, deeply rooted in understandings of how we are part of a basic web of all things. Modern science now powerfully pointing to this same understanding of nothing exists in isolation. Everything is a part of everything else. Um, I've often shared this quote from evolutionary biologist Lynn Margolis that I just love. Independence is a political term, not a scientific term. That's kind of a powerful statement. Um, independence is a political term, not a scientific one. So back to Thich Nhat Hanh, um, the flower teaching is one of his favorites. And uh, he wrote his teaching in, in his book, um, No Death, No Fear. Uh, and so I just want to share how he says this same teaching is pointed to um, in lots of traditions and lots of, of, you know, for eons, people have come to understand the truth of this. So what he says is, the flower is made of non-flower elements. We can describe the flower as being full of everything. There is nothing that is not present in the flower. We see sunshine, we see the rain, we see clouds, we see the earth. We also see time and space in the flower. A flower, like everything else, is made entirely of non-flower elements. The whole cosmos has come together in order to help the flower manifest herself. The flower is full of everything except one thing, a separate self, a separate identity. The flower cannot be by herself alone. The flower has to interbe with the sunshine, the cloud, and everything in the cosmos. If we understand being in terms of interbeing, then we are much closer to the truth. Interbeing is not being, and it is not non-being. Interbeing means being empty of a separate identity empty of a separate self. So intellectually, it's really not hard to follow what we factually know about things back to this same basic truth. But a wisdom in our life grows not from understanding that as an intellectual fact, 
but rather having a direct embodied experience of how I too am part of everything I see and everyone I see. And that's what this practice of mindfulness allows us to begin to see. And I just before I, I move into that, I really want to say none of this teaching negates needing a healthy sense of self. There's a way we have to function in the world that is useful. And having a healthy sense of self to help us function in the world, it's really important. That's not what this is about. This is about having a deeper understanding of what's underneath that um, uh, and moving to that. So in mindfulness practice, if I'm just being with the breath, there is a way breath meditation opens to a direct experience of this teaching. Dropping in the simple questions of where does this breath come from? What is it that I am breathing in and out? What's the mystery of how the body knows how much in-breath, how much out-breath? Where does that come from that works this out? I mean, there are just endless mystical, real levels of carrying us into deep interrelationship just from watching a simple in-breath and out-breath. And then just noticing how little a sense of me has anything to do with that. I think if I'm not practicing mindfulness, it's very easy to think I'm kind of in control of this body, this self, um, what, what arises, what happens in it. It doesn't take much to drop below the veneer of that and realize how little that voice of me um, in my head has anything to do with the fact of living in this life just the breath. That voice of me can decide, oh, I'm going to prolong an in-breath. And I might prolong an in-breath a little bit, but it's really not going to be very long before that in-breath has to turn around to an out-breath in a way that that voice of me has no power over whatsoever. I can't wake up some morning and decide, oh, I'm just going to do in-breaths today, or I'm just going to do out-breaths today. Is totally beyond that, that me. And that, you know, just the littleness that the me can have control over the breath is just the tip of the iceberg of how little that has control over the whole life function of this body. Mental functions, mental, um, um, our mental consciousness actually operates from a far more narrow range of control than we might think if we're not practicing with understanding the nature of the mind. I can just say for my own self, before I started practicing with mindfulness, I really saw myself as much more of an independent thinking, functioning being, and that I had some sort of view of things that had an external validity 
I had a power of seeing clearly into things as the way they really are. It was just the rest of everyone else who couldn't see clear, not me. <laughs> um, the reality is now I can never think I actually have a factual or objective understanding of things. This is the truth of implicit bias that's coming up so much now in our in our um, racial awakening that's going on, kind of a, a growing awareness of all of the unconscious harmful racial associations and judgments that color our view all the time. People are beginning to get that that stuff is in all of us. So bringing conscious awareness to the fact of that stuff in me, I can affect what I do with what comes up from that, that bias. I can affect change in that way that's very powerful and useful. But what I can no longer accept or, or think about my own self is that somehow I am separate from the influence of all of those associations and racial judgments and whatnot that we carry. I carry them too. Um, and that understanding changes how I interact with my own being in the world um, and how I understand things in the world. And that, that idea is by no means limited to race. It's with everything. That voice in my head that I associate as me is really this endless process of interwoven genes, physiology, sociology, family history, cultural history, endless interactions that moment by moment by moment are generating how this me sees things biological all you know all of that is is playing out so instead of a clear me there really becomes this understanding of a functioning changing interwoven tapestry of influences some conscious most of them unconscious what mindfulness does is it allows me awareness into that process so I can be much more skillful um, with navigating the stuff that this head can generate instead of taking it as having some sort of external validity. It can bring up a question and a curiosity of what is the best relationship here and now. Please call me by my true names. Don't say I will depart tomorrow. Even today, I'm still arriving. Look deeply. Every second, I am arriving to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding in the stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am a mayfly 
metamorphosing on the surface of the river. And I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I am a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond. I am the grass snake that silently feeds on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I'm the 12-year-old girl refuge, refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am also the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm, it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughter at once. So I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. <laughs>